when I failed, then you really find out about yourself. I don't find anything out about somebody who wins. I find a whole lot about people who lose. And lose is temporary for me. Yeah. Losing is, is just as fleeting as winning. Mm-hmm. That's the way you have to approach it. I didn't get this. Now what? I didn't get that. Now what? You're going to get to the point where you go, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Now what? But always say, now what? Because when you win, it's rare when you go, now what? When I was younger, I would beg my mom and dad to subscribe to ESPN. Those were the early days when ESPN was only in 1.5 million homes, and now they're in 90 million plus. Anyway, back then, there was a pilot. It was called SportsCenter that was anchored by Dan Patrick. Dan Patrick was to ESPN what Howard Stern is to SiriusXM. Before he landed the gig at Espen, he was on the road as a disc jockey doing top and bottom of the hour score callouts, sending in his highlight tapes to folks like Dan Levy to try and land a job. And after leaving ESPN almost a decade and a half later, Dan's launched the most successful sports talk radio show on the planet, which by the way was self-funded, then recapitalized, becoming one of the first live talk shows on television. His journey's incredible, through peaks and valleys. He's self-made, and I got a chance to visit him in his studio in Connecticut, which was also self-made. Suiting Up is a show that explores the psychology, playbook of tools, and strategies of the most influential people in sports, entrepreneurship, and entertainment. Enjoy my interview with the legend in sports casting, Dan Patrick. The legend in sports casting. Mm, uh oh. I'm really humbled and, and truly honored to sit down and, and first time in your space here. So thanks for having me. It's uh it's an honor to have you. Don't steal anything because I have cameras on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to start with basketball. You okay. grew up playing basketball. Mm-hmm. You were an all state basketball player. You idolize Pistol Pete. Was that, say, say, the entry point to getting into sports for you? Oh, I had no game plan. I had no idea what I was doing. I was, if it wasn't going to be baseball or basketball, then I didn't have another plan. That wasn't the, if I'm good at this, that helps me get into sports. I was already good at sports yeah. in, in knowledge, trivia, but this was what I was going to do for my career, basketball, in my mind when I was younger. And then all of a sudden I go... I'm not going to be able to play basketball. Let's get an education. Let's get on the radio. Now what are you going to do with your life? And then I just somehow, some way got into sports, but, but there, there was no game plan. But a scholarship playing in college at Eastern Kentucky prior to going over to Dayton to study comm, like, was there a moment where you're like, hey, I'm outmatched? Because we see, I mean, Steve Nash has been on this show, and you've got 16 inches on him. Oh, Talent-wise, I not shooting-wise, yeah, but talent-wise. Well, you can shoot. Yeah, I wasn't we should afraid. Ask Dan Marley. Yeah, I wasn't afraid. <laughs> I wasn't afraid. You know, my jump shot would hold up. Getting my jump shot wasn't going to hold up, okay. and I needed knee surgery since I was fifteen, and I decided to hold it off because back then it would have been open. They would have had to open me up for knee surgery. It wouldn't have been arthroscopic. Not that that would have changed much, but I already knew that. I was at a deficit to begin with, and I needed knee surgery, and I was trying to you know, play with these guys. And then I transferred to Dayton, and I, something clicked where I just said, all right, time to get on with my life. Yeah. And then I got on the campus radio station and uh, was a DJ, and then got a local job when I graduated from college where I was working weekends, and then there was an opening in the mornings to do news, and then I got that job working as a sidekick with the morning guy. I filmed my own audition tape that I sent five minutes of ad-libbing sports to Bob Lee at ESPN. And fast forward how many years later, I'm sitting next to Bob Lee anchoring SportsCenter. So I tell people, you got to be lucky, but you have to be good when you get lucky, if somebody's going to call you and say, now's your chance. If I didn't, if I didn't do well that first time with CNN, when I got a job, I just lost the job in Dayton, Ohio. I was going to, I was up for the weekend job and I was devastated. Right. I just thought I'll never, I was 27. That's old. And I had no, very little TV experience. And then I just took a vacation to visit uh, an ex-girlfriend. And then I got a job at CNN 
it was headline sports. I yeah. wasn't even on camera, but I was doing sports full time. So I was making eighteen five, and I thought I'd made it. Yeah, the the hustle, the grind. I want to talk a little bit about those four years in radio first, and being at rock stations and doing the top of the hour, bottom of the hour sports. I brought up basketball first because it feels like sports is a fabric of who you are, and and you always had that kind of vision, whether it was playing and then transitioning into radio. Uh, but I think a lot of young adults and, and college graduates often struggle with like what it is my passion. What is my passion? And to me, it sounds like you're talking about work ethic, endurance, timing of luck and getting the opportunity. But it, it sounds like you knew you wanted to get into sports media to some extent. How certain were you of that? And do you think that you're probably like against the norm there? Oh, yeah. I was 12 when I just said, this is what I want to do. I was memorizing baseball lineups. Um, I'd read Sports Illustrated. I'd cut out all the pictures and hang them yeah. on my wall. And this is at 12. And then my dad had the great idea of let's get two subscriptions to Sports Illustrated, one for you to read and cut up, and then one for everybody else in the family. But I knew that, that that's somehow, some way what I wanted to do. I didn't know how to do it because yeah. there was no – if you do this and you do this, you can get to here. It must have been so daunting. ESPN didn't didn't arise until 1979. Yeah, right. So, so. But once I saw it, I knew that was it. That's where I wanted to work. It was 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I thought, well, there's got to be enough time for me to work there if it's 24 hours a day. Yeah. And I remember sitting in my off-campus house with my roommates and we had to decide between heat and cable and we opted for cable because of ESPN. Yeah. So we would be there in our sleeping bags, bundled up, watching Sports Center. But that I, I just knew that, that that's where I wanted to end, end up. How did you know was it you mentioned your dad or, or mentors to say like, hey, I need to package up a highlight tape or something that I did here with Dayton basketball and send that to Bob Lee. That first, then second, how did you get Bob Lee's information? Well, I just got the address of ESPN, sent it in care of Bob Lee. Yeah. But I actually had a friend named Gene who had equipment, and we rented out a tripod, a camera, and two lav microphones. And I remember doing an interview with Joe Garagiola, longtime baseball announcer. He came into town, and I told him, I said, this is for an audition tape for nothing else. And he sat down with me for 15 minutes. So I had that. I had me on camera doing some ad-libbing. Um, and then I had a couple of things that I had done, I'd put together, edited. But they, it was not professional by any means. But I just wanted... I wanted somebody to see something, yeah. and then they could tell me. I just wanted feedback, and Bob Lee gave me feedback. Yeah. He said, look, you're not ready now, but you know, I could see down the road where you might be able to do this. Not do this at ESPN. I wanted to do it locally at Channel 2 in Dayton, Ohio. I would have been fine with that. And then when I lost the job at Channel 2, I thought, I can't work in Dayton, Ohio doing weekends. I can't work at ESPN or I can't work in New York or out. And I kept thinking, okay, now what do I do? And if I, if I didn't take that vacation in Atlanta I, to CNN I, and, and gone in to that last day I was on vacation, I went to CNN and I said, can I see Bill McPhail? And Bill McPhail, I'd never met. He was the president of CNN Sports. And she says, well, you know, just leave the tape here. So I had an audition tape, this big clunky audition tape. And I remember going to the receptionist and uh, I said, well, could he look at it now? I yeah. was so naive. I said, could he look at it now? I'm going back to Ohio tomorrow. So she says, uh, yes, uh, this gentleman is, uh, wants to know if you can look at it today. He's going back to Ohio tomorrow. And he says, what part of Ohio to her? She says, what part? And I go, Dayton. And he said, have him come back. He was from Columbus. Huh. So I could just, it's so random that that would happen. I, I had the guts to take it in. I said, can you watch it today? And he watched it right in front of me. Wow. So it's three minutes in, 332, 337, and he's, he's watching this. 
and I don't know if that's good or not. And I don't know if he's watching because it's only five minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going, okay. I, I Probably studying him. If he's than, waiting yeah. for something, <laughs> you know, there's, there's nothing magical here. And he popped it out. And then he goes, uh, can you start today? And I go, no. I mean, no, I got to go back to Ohio. And then he goes, well, can you start next week? Uh, I said I can start in two weeks. He goes, I need you to start in a week. So He did have guts. I, I, I went – Back in a week, and I ended up uh, six months later, I'm in New York. I took over for Keith Oberman, who was the New York bureau reporter. I'd never been to New York. And then fast forward, you know, a couple of years later, I go back to Anchor in Atlanta, and then I go back up to New York. I end up meeting my wife, who worked in the political unit, and then for uh, I, I was there five years, and then I my contract ran out. Once again, I'm so naive in the business. I didn't have an agent, and I was making, I think I was making fifty thousand dollars, and I asked for sixty thousand. I, I don't even know what I was worth, but I asked yeah. for sixty. Yeah. <laughs> and my boss, Bill McPhail, says, "I'm going to offer you fifty-five. Now I thought, uh, then he doesn't want me to stay. Right. So. I called up ESPN, realized that John Walsh was the guy in charge. I said, John, do you know who I am? Yes. I said, are you interested in hiring me? Yes. Uh, he said, when can you come up? And he said, well, this is Friday. And I said, I Monday or Tuesday. He said, how about Tuesday? We'll make arrangements for you to fly in. And I said, okay. And then I ended up taking the job that day. They you know, what they offered me, I accepted. Yep. And then I had to tell Bill McPhail that I was leaving and he never spoke to me again. He yeah. was so disappointed that I left. And I did, I did, if he said $60,000, I would have stayed at CNN. I mean, I didn't care. I wanted to do sports. I didn't care what I was making or where I was doing it. Yeah. And I always tell younger, you know, students or people in the business, do what you love. If you're able to do what you love, it doesn't matter where you're doing it or how much you're making. If you love it, and how many people in a, in in the world do what they truly love? Yeah. And I was doing what I loved. You know, I didn't realize if I had a family, you know, I I wasn't going to have any money, and my wife wasn't making any money, but I was happy. In the first twelve years of ESPN, it wasn't about money. It truly wasn't. Yeah. When we realized how underpaid we were, then it then it became a little, you know, ES Sports Center is making four hundred million a year, right. you know, and we're making a hundred thousand dollars. So we started to go, you know, we're kind of popular and we seem to be doing well on Sports Center. So then it became a little bit more about money and and less about fun. Yeah. And that you know that was something that was a big lesson that I learned there. Yeah. So I want to reverse to guts because I think that's a, a consistent narrative throughout your career, and then we'll jump into your entrepreneurial side once you left ESPN. But you you call yourself naive. I I, I, I would I would disagree. I think there's just a, a ton of value. Now, I mean, you may have been too young to to understand like, hey, I'm knocking on the door of the head of sports of of CNN. So it's probably how you're framing it. But but I remember. And this is a story that's come up on the show with with Bill Belichick just reaching out to Bill Parcells for his first gig. Tim Ferriss, who guests um, uh, lectures at Stanford School of Business, always challenges, and he will give as a reward to the winning student a round trip flight to anywhere in the world if they can get in touch with one of the world leaders or most famous people in the world. And he usually lists. Barack Obama, Mark Zuckerberg, Reed Hastings, Sheryl Sandberg, and these kids in this class go, how am I supposed to get out get in touch with these people? He said, well, there are ways to do it. There are methodologies, but it requires guts. Yeah. Do you think what you did then is more difficult to do now? In other words, are there more layers between getting in touch with Dan Patrick if you're the next aspiring sportscaster? Um, no, because you can tweet, you can email, and you can call on the show. So my my availability is different than than most people in this business. That uh, or you can people send letters to the the show. How do you stand out amidst all the noise? If 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 you're going to give advice to someone, well, that's why I started this school of sportscasting mm -hmm. because I I was giving advice, but it, it felt like it was I could have been giving it to more people, and that's what I wanted to do. But this has been in the works for seven years at least yeah. because I just 
it, I was amazed at the number of kids who would go to college, get out of college, and go, where's my job? Or how do I get in the business? And you're so far behind everybody. And I remember a meeting with a kid because his parents were friends uh, of a friend, and they said, would you meet with him? He just graduated from LSU. And this isn't a knock on LSU as much as it is, you know, when you go for communications, you better have internships. You better be on the radio. You better be uh, in new school newspaper, doing demo tapes by doing play-by-play for the, you know, college baseball team like there's so much you have to do just to get to the point when you graduate to get an internship and I would see all these kids come into ESPN who work there they'd have six months to prove themselves and they were highly educated very sharp kids but if you don't have that you got you just don't have any chance of getting in it's really and it's I liken it as the most competitive job field in America yeah because everybody says oh that's a cool job or I could do that and it and, and it's not easy. Like right. there are guys who make it look too easy. Therefore, people sit at home and go, "Yeah, I could do that." Yeah, I would say it's it's more difficult to get in a roster spot in pro sports because your average sportscaster expectancy career career expectancy is much longer than in the NFL oh, or the yeah. NBA, which is two and a half years. But the difficulty for just using sports as an example. A, a talented senior for for a college school is is getting drafted is like these veterans are retaining their positions and I would suspect in sports casting the vacancy is is very limited in opportunity. Well, I've been doing this for thirty five years now. Yeah, um, no I haven't had that stop. many jobs, but I you know I I still love doing it. But if you're trying to get in the business to try to do this, that's why I always tell people. Start your own podcast. Like, do things that I can listen to, I can read, or I can watch. Because you can come in and say, hey, uh, Paul, I, uh, I'm talented. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, got, I don't know what you look like. I don't know what you sound like. I don't know if you can write. How are you in front of people if you're doing, you know, if, if it's live? And it's just, I always say to Bob Costas, you know, he, he created this mess because he makes it look easy. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so everybody time. goes, God, that'd be pretty cool to go to the Super Bowl. And, you know, meanwhile, you're up there handing out the trophy and there's 100 million people watching and, and you could screw up. Right. You know, so it's, it's a high wire act, no matter where you are, because you're live. Yeah. And I always tell people, that's the rush, but then there's no net underneath you. But that's the fun part of what we do. Yeah. A lot of your career, to me, mirrors Howard Stern on, on a number of fronts. And he's, he's staying on the radio. I, I know you, you, have, uh, you, you care a lot about him and, and what he's done. And I've acknowledged his impact on me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, and even uh, similar road and way of timing of, of going and getting radio gigs. And, um, and then the feeling of, hey, in your case, ESPN's turned into this giant uh, that – I don't know if ownership transferred out. You were there after, but ABC owned 100%. Now 80%. Hearst owns 20. Uh, but underpaid sportscasters, and in his case, when he went to SiriusXM, he felt like, hey, he took this business from two and a half, four million subs to 27 and a half million, and most are loyal to Howard. Um, so, so to your point, talent drives a business, and content is about the cast. Uh, but you, different than Howard, although. What you're doing now is, is, is similar to, to where Howard went to television. But when you went to ESPN and were front and center with Keith Olbermann calling Sports Center and turned that franchise into what it was, going from radio to TV, I would imagine, was, was pretty challenging. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, there's a number of hurdles. Yeah, I was never, even to this day, not comfortable on camera because it's, it's not a natural act. Radio is natural mm. because – it's three hours, you're talking, you're interviewing, uh, you give your thoughts, got to have opinions. And, and that came naturally. TV never came naturally. And I remember when I, would, I was doing SportsCenter, I was still trying to figure out who I was. Hmm. And Keith was a big personality, and my job was sort of to play the straight man, but get in my digs or my lines or my sense of humor, but do it in, in kind of a covert way. Keith, you know, up my game, you know, you kind of had to go up to his level. But he came in after me at ESPN. And I remember they called me in. My boss called me in, and he had me sit down. And I thought, oh, boy. 
And he goes, uh, you're, uh, you're, you know Keith Oberman? I said, yeah. He goes, we're thinking about bringing him in. And I go, great. Well, we'd have him work with you on the 11 o'clock. And I go, yeah, great. And then they go, are you sure? I go, yeah. I said, is that why I'm in here? And they go, yeah. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, bring him in. Yeah. And that was it. <laughs> and Keith did local. He didn't do an hour. He did five minutes. And I had to tell him, you got to pace yourself. Because he was hitting home run, he was trying to knock you out in the first five minutes. I said, "You got, you know, we got fifty-five more minutes to go right. here." And you guys were doing all your own writing. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes. And a lot of it it was ad lib, but they trusted us because we, well, we had to prove that you could trust us. But we did. We were knowledgeable. We could have fun. You know, we took some risk. But um, back then, we were trying to get away with stuff. Now they want you to get away with stuff. They want you to try to be different and hmm. don't be afraid to say something. You know, stuff that you see on first take or any of that stuff around the horn, we got yelled at when we would say something or sort of make it about ourselves or show too much personality. Right. But that was the fun part of it is how can we do this in a covert way while still getting our message out, entertaining people, and our bosses didn't get upset with us. That yeah. was the challenge every single night. When you stepped in to work every day, what was the roadmap from we have a show, you wrote it, uh, to getting prepped, to shooting it, to going to post and getting it done, and you'd walk out. You weren't doing any of the posts, presumably. No, it's live. It, it was all live. Yeah, there's no post. Yeah, the, those graphic hits are coming in. Everything's live. Yeah. But we would get there. We'd have a 3 o'clock rundown meeting, get done with that, and then start writing the show, and then you're watching highlights or watching games themselves, and then something could change, and then you're you know you have to be able to kind of maneuver on the on the fly, and then we'd follow a game normally, and then you'd have to wait until the game was over. If the game was ending early, you had to be ready to go. We were doing our own makeup then, yeah. our own wardrobe. Um, yeah, I said when you were on SVP show, uh, you had mentioned just recently, like you have your own makeup guy now. Oh, I What's know. What's up with this? People, people were. Ch we were told, you know, that you know we didn't need to have a makeup artist. We didn't have wardrobe. You yep. brought in your own clothes. <laughs> and meanwhile, they're making a couple hundred million dollars off of Sports Center. It was just pathetic. We couldn't. We, they didn't give us offices. Um, they gave those to the coordinating producers. It was they we, management didn't like talent. Mm. Um, and my one of my former bosses, Steve Bornstein, very successful, started the NFL Network. Said, you know, you're just fucking talent. Yeah, like that was that's his expression. Mm. And I th and he liked me, but he said that's all you are. Mm. You weren't people. You were just a thing. And that let me know right away that you know. It's always going to come back to management and producers and coordinating producers, not the talent. That it almost felt like we were more expendable. So they, they it was not a you were never coddled there, yeah. which is good. I mean, you were always on your toes, and you know the fact that I survived there 18 years, and I say that because in my mind, you know, you're kind of your own worst enemy. I didn't think I was getting better. Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of guys who were after after your throne. I mean, there was there's a lot of competition. Yep. Um, but but it made me better. It was just, uh, you know, it, it's it wasn't an at atmosphere that was conducive to. Hey, we got some stars here. Let's take care of them. They had Chris Berman, and that was it. Yeah. And you know, they said we don't want to have another Berman, and that's why I think they were trying to keep Keith and I under their thumb. And then Stewart came along. Like they were, then they had no no choice. It was just like you know what we're in trouble here. It's like Kevin Bacon in Animal yeah. House when he, he's holding up his hands like, stop, and then they <laughs> you know, run him over. That, that was the feeling that we had with management. It, it really it, it mirrors what we were seeing at the exact time in team sports, too, with the NFL ownership groups just treating their <laughs> players or even prior to the advent of agency representation, that happening in tennis and golf, and those were the first to kind of turn over to, to hire agents to say, like, hey, we're actually what the fan wants to consume. We're not just talent. Yeah. And we're seeing Adam Silver now, I think, as, as the best commissioner in all of pro sports uh, be able to manage uh, his fiduciary responsibility to the ownership groups of the NBA while also allowing the players to feel 
valuable, to feel as if they can be activists uh, on their own social interests and so on and so forth. So for, for you, when you first got in the business, it sounds like you didn't have an agent. When did that turn? And assuming that that's ubiquitous for, for sportscasters, I do know Sandy Montag, and I think yours is Reed Bergman. Have you been with him from, from the very beginning? No, no, no. I didn't. I had an agent, Steve Lefkowitz, who since passed away, uh, but I had him for the beginning of my ESPN career and had him for about 15 years, and then I didn't have one for 10 years. Hmm. Um, I just, you know, I thought I could negotiate for myself better than somebody else. Which is true, right? Well, yes and no, but I, I wouldn't do it differently. I, I did it because I thought, well, let me, I want to find out what goes on here. Hmm. And I remember with NBC, I was going to negotiate with Dick Ebersol. And here's a, one of the legendary people in this business. Right. And he tried and he said, I can't do it. I said, why? He goes, I, 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 I'm going to have you talk to my right-hand guy, Ken Chancer. I can't do this. Because hmm. he wasn't comfortable with just telling me when I would ask him, well, what can I, you know, what am I worth? Like, I wanted direct answers. Yeah. And he wasn't comfortable doing it because they don't do it that way. You always go through the agent where you can say anything to an agent. Yep. Like, you can yell at them, you, whatever. Agents don't take it personally. And he... So I've been, I've negotiated, you know, my last few contracts, but you know, whether I left money on the table, it didn't matter. I wanted to hear from you, right? What you thought of me. And I think it goes back to Mark Shapiro, who was a boss at ESPN said to my agent, he's over the hill and he'll never get another job. Wanted me to resign, but his words were, you know, if he's thinking about leaving and not resigning, he's over the hill and nobody's going to hire him. So my agent tells me this. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, I got to resign. And he takes great pride in this that he said that. But yeah. he was trying to win a negotiation. Yep. If I was face-to-face -face with him, then it would have been different. He never would have said that to me. Yeah. You're over the hill and you never get another job. And I was in my late 40s, and I'm thinking, gosh, maybe he's right. But I wanted to take that, I wanted to take that advantage away from my boss. I wanted to at least have a couple of arrows that I could fire back. Yeah. So, so I would, well, one example, Richard Sherman, I, I think it was, was pretty groundbreaking in negotiating his own deal yeah. uh, this, this past year. And we're seeing with new media, specifically social brands going direct to athletes for sponsorship deals. We're seeing the influx of branded content campaigns. So uh, kind of the, 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 the downward turn of traditional endorsements. And so what we, typically look at with agencies as this insular layer to protect athletes, but also add negotiative horsepower, um, that may not be as needed anymore. That said, it feels theoretically right, but to be able to have a conversation, to your point, be direct, unemotional, requires a lot of self-awareness. I, I wasn't able to do that. I really try to practice it now on a number of circumstances in business and in sports as a captain of a team and having conversations with guys who aren't in the lineup versus just kind of shrugging it off or passing them on to the next person. So I think volume, good practice is helpful, but where did you develop that level of kind of humility, self-awareness, thick skin, ability to sit in the hole and take feedback and, and not take it personally? It's, it's not easy. It's probably the most difficult thing to do. Well, you take it, personally you know certain things but then you eventually have to have at least a little bit of a uh, you know an, a, a veneer an exterior that that just says all right take the first artillery and then you know you you survive that then you're good uh humility came from being in a large family i i just think that you i, I knew what a dollar was i knew what work ethic was um I knew what work, you know, being part of a, a family, a team. So I, I, I was equipped with all of those things. But, you know, to be able to kind of sit there in the trenches and go, all right, let's go toe to toe here and kind of figure this out. Um, I guess I was just tired of paying somebody to talk for me. Mm. Like, what are you, why am I paying you 6% to go in there to talk for me? How about I just take out the middleman? Let me just walk in and talk to you. Then I get to hear exactly what you feel, 
what you think. Where do I stand? I can ask you a direct question. And I, then it kind of emboldened me, empowered me. And I'm like, let's go. Yeah. I mean, if you can sit down with Dick Ebersole, you can sit down with anybody. Because, right. you know, Dick's one of the brilliant minds in, in this business, sports business. And I thought, all right, let me see what I can do. And uh, I made him uncomfortable. Yeah, and I bet I bet from the flip side too, you learn for any of the athletes out there negotiating their deals, or or if, if you're in another uh, industry, is is you also learn about the person that you're negotiating against, and is that type of leader the person that you want to work for for the next two, five, ten years of your life? Well, I didn't read into it that much because Shapiro was not a guy that I liked. But I, I did respect him because yeah. he was creative. He took chances. He's energetic. But he, I didn't trust him. Um, so if I went on just, do I believe in him or do I want to stay here because of him, then I wouldn't have stayed there. Hmm. So I stayed there in spite of him. Like, I just thought he was, he was so OCD that he had to be, like, he was doing a million things. He, he, he's the one that came up with Sports Century. Hmm. He was the brains behind that and tapped me to host it. Um, so I, yeah, he had vision, he's creative, but I didn't think he was a day-to-day good person for me that I wanted to work with, but I did, I did want to work. I, I wanted to stay with the product. I, I believed in ESPN Yeah, probably too long because I didn't realize after 15 years, I wasn't having fun mm-hmm. and it's hard to tell people I wasn't having fun at ESPN. Because they don't... I can imagine. They're just like, wait, what's wrong with you? Right. And then I go, um, yeah, I, I stayed three years too long. I just didn't want to give up that address. Yeah. And then I realized, I'm taking up a job that somebody else should be doing. And I, I just... I remember that last negotiation, and I've told this story where I said, I'm going to sign another five-year deal. And I kept telling my wife, hey, you know, it's going to be fine. She goes, why is it every time you, you know, you make more money, they give you more things to do. And you say you want to spend time with the kids. And I'm like, no, it'll be great. And then I I just, she said, they're all going to be gone when you're done with this contract. Hmm. And my son was 15 at the time and my youngest was eight. And so what she was saying is, you know, when this is all done, you know, you're going to go, wait, what happened? Yeah. Where are the kids? And so I, I just remember when she said that, and I drove up to ESPN that day, and I remember my boss said, all right, take it or leave it. And I said, I'm, I'm going to leave it. And her words came into my head, because that's the only reason why I would have done it. And then I just told her, I said, I'm, uh, I'm coming home. And she said, okay. And I said, no, I, I, I just told ESPN I'm not resigning. She goes, okay. Yeah. Like she had the I she she saw it. I didn't. I, I was too close. Like I can't give up this job, and and she said if we have to sell the house, we'll sell the house. Hmm. So she had the great insight and perspective, and I didn't because I was so driven. Like I I'm working ESPN. Like okay, I would have missed the important years with my daughters. Yeah. I have three daughters. My oldest is uh, a boy, and I would never give those. Even when I got sand kicked in my face when I left ESPN, I never would have given up those years for a better salary or you know a, a softer landing. Yeah, because it was invaluable to be home and be doing the show in my attic. Yeah, I mean which, it's not many people go from ESPN to the attic, right? I mean, it, yeah. it's sort of going ESPN to the basement, but I was in the attic doing my radio <laughs> yeah. show. So that that was what then ensued. You, you let ESPN know in July it was amicable, so you finish through August. You take a whole 30 days off of your career, which <laughs> probably speaks to your uh, – and maybe there was no time off, but uh, you then take the Dan Patrick Show, which you had then uh, started at ESPN in 99 while yeah. you were doing the main Sports Center show, uh, and you were able to get that off and running with the Premier Radio Network and their syndicate of, of radio channels – and bring on your cast and basically self-fund this thing from your attic. So you quite literally went home and you were working from home. You're getting more time with your family, presumably. Yeah. Um, but what a what a change in in your career. We talk about yeah, ESPN as you mentioned on the SVP show 
wasn't then like it is now in way of all these assistants and assistants, assistants and makeup artists and stuff, but you still had a supporting crew. Now you're taking the trust of your cast that you're bringing on. You're doing everything from scratch. It probably went back to your days and why it's so valuable for everyone young out there to like you disc jockey. You understood the soundboarding. You understood the engineering to a certain degree where you could do this, but what a, uh, what a heavy lift. It was probably really daunting. It was pretty scary. I remember sitting at home on the porch with my dog, and we were the only ones home. So I, here I'm coming home, and then I get home, and then nobody's there because they, they sort of had their own lives. And I was waiting for them to kind of stop their lives because I was at home. And then my wife said, they're here. They're just not going to be here as much as you think they are. And I, I sat there on the front porch with my dog, and I just went, what did I do? Because I had to go door to door to get radio affiliates. And I remember we had 12. And, and what, what changed everything was KLAC in Los Angeles. Don Martin took a chance. And because he took a chance, you know, it's a copycat business that, oh, he's doing morning drive on KLAC. And then I started to get more affiliates. And I brought in people that I liked. I brought in, you know, Paulie and Fritzy and Seton. McLovin eventually came on like six or eight months later. Mm-hmm. But all I know is I've never had more fun. And it went back to when Keith and I were doing Sports Center, when I've never had more fun on TV. Yeah. Because we were doing something that was dangerous, it was new. And then I wanted to see if I could get the reason why we moved out of my attic and into this man cave was. You can't have a business in the association I live in. So the association huh. said, you can't have all those cars in the driveway. You can't be running a business. Yeah. And that's the only reason why we moved out. And that was just your HOA. Yeah. Yeah, because a lot of people work out of their houses, but your HOA said, nope. Nope. Yeah. So I'm downstairs <laughs> at the bar where I met you, Seven Seas, and I'm with Paulie, and I'm going, we're in trouble, man. I got to move out. I got three months to find a place that we want to put TV cameras in it. Um, and, you know, so I got to find fiber optics. Yep. And that's not easy to find. Nope. And as it turned out, the bar owner, Rich, was downstairs, and he said, well, I got this space upstairs, hadn't been used in 20 years. And we came in, and this was blank. Yeah. So I said, I can, I can put in whatever I want. Do whatever I want. Put a basketball hoop, a golf simulator, put in a bar. He said, you can do whatever you want. Amazing. And, and so we just did this in three months. Fiber optics we found right across the street. Wow. It's really expensive to run a line for fiber optics. Yeah. It would have cost us a couple hundred thousand dollars to the other place that was available. So we, we found that, got TV cameras in here. Chris Long, who worked at DirecTV, was my boss instrumental in saying whatever it takes we'll make it work they put in these cameras remote control from los angeles so the whole production crew is out there and then i wanted this to be sort of a a voyeuristic simulcast i didn't want a camera in front of me where i'm just sitting there yeah i wanted movement i wanted behind the scenes during the commercial breaks you get to see sort of what's going on yeah and these guys bought in to it with me because you know you're on camera now and it can be embarrassing. It can, but I said, you got to understand, this is what we're doing. Yeah. And I'm going to make you guys stars. It so- was incredibly predictive. I mean, because this was 2007. And I tell my story. I graduated from Hopkins in 2008. And as a lacrosse player, which unless you watch the Final Four on ESPN2 every year, very few people even knew what the sport was. They thought it was either Highlight or Quidditch. Uh, and then that was on the advent of Facebook fan pages in 2008. And this was, uh, YouTube was around. It was just streaming cat videos and on yeah. occasion trick shots. This was pre-Twitter, pre-Instagram. And so it was the first time, though, that you could build an audience through a social network and tell your story. But what we've learned, fast forward 10 years, with the proliferation of social media is that this behind-the-scenes content is not only integral to a business's or personality storytelling, but it's now mandatory. So much that... I use WWE as an example, which you know, most people know from a, from a wrestling perspective, it's fake. Those guys and gals definitely make contact and it's physical, but they're, 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 
their 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 sanctuary was always, you know, making sure that anything in front of their audience was perceived as real. They were always on script and in character. Now they've developed the WWE network and they tell almost what the script writing or the script writing scenarios are like. So they've even opened up the curtain as they call it to behind the scenes. So you did this in 2007. It was just guttural. I just knew what I didn't want to be. Yeah. And I thought, what would I want to watch if I was watching? And so the fact that I have 11 cameras in play every day and the director can show whatever camera she wants because it's remote control to Los Angeles, which is amazing. And, and that goes to the fiber connectivity. Yeah, but we just, we just do the show. Um, they, they find us. Whatever it is, if, if we're doing something over here or the golf simulator, basketball, we have meat Friday and we're cooking out on the, <laughs> on the patio. I just want movement. I want, I want you to understand what's going on when it goes to commercial break. This is going on. And even while we're doing the, the show, what do they want to show you? That's up to them. It's sort of like the Truman movie mm-hmm. with Jim Carrey. Yeah. But we're all sort of Jim Carrey. <laughs> show whatever you want to show. We get to escape, whereas Jim didn't right. until the end. Spoiler alert! But but I wanted I wanted that to you know we don't have makeup on. You wear whatever you want to wear. Say what you want to say. It's live, but it was something that was different, and there was nothing else in the marketplace. But going back to Howard Stern, what Howard's brilliance is is he makes guys on the show interesting that you would never think were interesting, like Ronnie the limo driver, right, or Sal. Or Richard, JD, you wouldn't be interested in them. Yep. But he makes you interested in them. Well, Robin was doing the weather. Yeah. And now she's his famous co-host. Yes, but that's and she's wonderful. That's him. His curiosity is great with that because then I'm interested in Baba Booey or John Hine, or, <laughs> and so that's the the only reason why I I had the I guess the picture the wherewithal to put these guys on was because Howard, it was my, I knew Fritzy was really interesting and different. And Paulie had a unique perspective and Seton was sort of a wild card. And McLovin was a really sharp guy who could play dumb. And I thought, you know what? Let's, let's just do it. I didn't want to be a singular voice. I wanted it to be collaborative where you almost had an audience that could send, they could send something back to you. So if I, if I served, you could volley back to me. Yep. And then I had a tennis match, if you're listening. And even if you're watching, you're able to, there's movement there. So I, I had strategy to it, but I, I don't think I ever would have thought, can I make it work without listening to Howard? Because I thought, that's going to be the chore. I can do interviews. I can give you perspective. Can I make these guys part of the show interesting that you want to hear or you appreciate them. Yeah, so there's your brilliance and foresight in media and bringing this whole thing to life. What many uh, young entrepreneurs um, that, that get into the startup landscape, they have to be concerned with funding. So having invested in media companies and consumer packaged goods businesses, you know, you look at line of revenue differently because you know media, you're playing on, on, a, on a trade of attention and you're going after scale. Uh, but but taking this payroll on with, with with what you did after leaving ESPN, like how much were you thinking about? Well, I was the in economics? trouble. I was in trouble after a couple of years. We, as a company, in fact, I was downstairs with Paulie, and I remember we were having a beer, and I said, you know, I I'm I'm going to need some help financially because the people who mm-hmm. helped me leave ESPN weren't able to kind of keep up their end of the bargain as much as we needed to. I give them a lot of credit because, you know, they had, they had an idea of what to do and how to do it. We weren't able to carry it out the, you know, the fullest. So I went across the street in the parking lot and I called DirecTV and I asked for Chris Long. I, I didn't know him. You know, it's one of those cold calls. Once again, there, there's there a go. theme of me yeah. <laughs> where I'm just going, hey, uh, it's Dan Patrick. Do you know who I am? He goes, of course I do. And I said, well, I, I do this show. Would you be interested in, you know, buying it? And he goes, um, how much is it? So I told him how much it was. And he goes, um, let me get back to you. 
I said, okay. Like, he didn't say no or right. that's crazy. And so I had to get all the numbers, and then he, he bought it with DirecTV. And then he put in the cameras, and, you know, and so we, we ended up doing some pretty incredible things because of him yeah. and his generosity. But without that, if I don't call him, I, you know, I'm not sitting here. Like, if I, I don't call certain people, that I don't know where. I'm in, you know, Mason, Ohio, bartending somewhere. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I guess if you believe. Yeah. And, and, if, and if you're able to convince. Because people want to believe somebody. If you really want something. Yeah. Then I got to believe you. Yeah. But if you don't believe it, I'm not. And so when I talked to Chris Long at DirecTV, I just said, look, we're on the verge of doing something nobody's ever done. And that got his attention. And once I said, you know, I want to have cameras and behind the scenes, and he goes, yeah, remote control from Los Angeles. And then, you know what, we can get, uh, we'll have a couple of handheld in it. So then I had him. So then he saw it. And then I didn't care who got credit or whose vision. Just get me on the air and let me do something different. And, you know, that, that we were very fortunate. I'm still with, you know, DirecTV, now yep. AT&T. Yep. But uh, Chris has moved on to, you know, make TV shows and movies. But... That's sort of how what our impression. I, a guy who uh, helped get, get the Goldbergs on the air says, uh, "Who's your set designer?" And I go, "I thought he was joking." I said, yeah. "I said, wait, what do you mean?" He goes, "No, no, who who created the set?" And I go, right. "I did." He goes, "You did the set design?" I said, "It's not a set design. It's called. <laughs> um, I'm just going to put some stuff on the walls here. Yeah. I wanted the the brick is uh, fake brick." Those are half bricks. There's hmm. Wayne's coating uh, that I wanted in. So all all this stuff has been put in. Yeah. So these walls. It's amazing. The, the brick we put in the fireplace. The floors were already here. The bar area we put in. Uh, obviously the basketball hoop, the golf simulator. But we just had. We're using every bit of space we had here. Yeah. Are and, you still still taking shots? Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, every day. I, I mentioned it earlier when we said let's kick it off with basketball. But one of, one of your best moments, from my perspective, because I used to watch the Suns play, is when you challenged Dan Marley oh my to gosh. a three point contest and you beat him. Um, and then you then uh, five years later challenged Jordan and said you could guard him one on one, and he must think you were crazy. And then you showed him how that you was when him. Jordan Jordan uh, retired, so he had just hit the shot in Utah. Yeah, and I have no idea why I was like just a smartass, but <laughs> he. He had just won. He was. He had his jersey out. His shoes were off. He had a Cuban cigar. He's just drenched in champagne. And I remember him getting up because Phil Jackson was going to sit in next. And then I just said, man, it's a shame you're retiring. And he goes, why is that? I said, man, I like a piece of you. He goes, <laughs> like, who, who does that? And, and he goes, stand up. And I had my suit and tie on. We're during commercial break, and Phil's over here ready to come on. He goes, stand up. How would you fucking guard me? I go, what? <laughs> so now I'm like, okay. I put my hand in it for him in his back. He goes, I'd fucking kill you. I, I would, and, and I'm like, you just won a championship. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I've got my forearm in Jordan's back with champagne now all over my forearm on my suit. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, I, I wanted a piece of you. Yeah. And I sat down, and then Phil goes, do you, do you see what I've dealt with? Yeah. You know, I deal with every day, yeah. you know, that competitiveness. And, you know, Marley, to his credit, he didn't have to let me shoot against him because he had everything to lose. And, and it started at the beginning of the year in Hartford. The Celtics were in town against the Suns, and Marley was shooting. So I'm just there watching. Marley and Cedric Sabalos were shooting. And then Marley goes, you want to shoot? And I had casual clothes. I said, yeah. Did you know your background in hoops? No. Yeah. So we, we shot that day, and Marley crushed me. And I beat said Sabalos. Marley crushed me. So fast forward to the NBA Finals, where I'm with Jack Ramsey, Hall of Fame coach, and I'm doing a Sports Center hit. We're walking through the Chicago Stadium, and they're just starting practice. And Marley goes, uh, you want a rematch? I go, I have my suit and tie on, dress shoes on. I go, okay. And so Paul Westfall holds up practice, and then I get ready to walk out there. I have to 
untuck my shirt. I got my tie on. I got dress shoes on. And Jack Ramsey's there watching this. And I said, uh, you know, give me uh, – I need, I need like 10 warm-ups. And Lionel Hollins goes, you get five. <laughs> so we're shooting threes. And I'm going, oh, my God. Everybody's watching. The whole team's watching. I'm, Barkley's there. Yeah. And I'm going, I just don't want to get humbled. And so, you know, Marley shot first. I guess he was trying to send the message of, you know, I'm going to intimidate you. And then it came down to I could tie him or if I banked it from the side – he would count that as two. He said, what are you going for? Well, I went for the bank and made it. Yeah. And then the next night he had eight threes in, in the game against the Bulls. He said, you know, and, and I've become good friends with him. He said it, it went from the worst day of his career to the best day of his career. But he, he readily acknowledges that I, I beat him in a shooting. And um, thank yeah. God Jack Ramsey was there because – Dr. Jack goes, Dan, I never would have believed it if I didn't see it. I said, thank God you were there, Jack. Yeah, this this wasn't one for one. He was 11 for 15. Yeah. You were 10 for 14, banked your 11 yes. then. So, yes. I mean, this is this yeah. is real shooting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know. Like, I, I, this ain't lucky. No, no, no. This was like. Uh, they must have uh, been, uh, what? what's this guy's experience playing uh, yeah. hoops? Yeah, they could have used me, This I isn't think, Rich Eisen series. running a 40-yard <laughs> no, dash. No. I'd be like Rich Eisen running track and field in college no. and then doing that every year and competing against the NFL. But I, I get into this where I think I'm – but I, I was always viewed myself as an underdog, and therefore I always wanted to challenge you. I didn't, I didn't care who it was. I, I just thought, why not challenge you? Yeah. And that was one of those moments where I went, you know what? I want a piece of Jordan or and I would love to have played Jordan one on one. Yeah. I would have not even gotten shots off, but I wanted a piece of you. Yeah. So Marley gave me a chance and I took a piece out of him. Yeah. And and so guts being a challenger, uh, that's led us to to what you've done uh with full sale in this partnership and and the Dan Patrick Sportscasting School. So acknowledging the rise of bloggers. Uh, acknowledging the new social media platforms and this Wild West and competition for rights and what's going to happen in front of screen, behind screen. You are now, you've created a bachelor's degree opportunity for people to learn about sports casting and creating content for multiple mediums um, in today's day and age. And so that, that motive for you said it was seven years in the making. I was at the announcement in New York City and got to see you uh, unveil this and, and you were emotional about it. And it hit home for me, knowing how much work you've put into it, knowing the ethics of journalism, but also being self-aware enough, having not ever met you before, to uh, pivot with the times. And then not only pivot, but give back and create a world where it's coalescing kind of the best of both. Well, it, just the fact that we've created a bachelor's degree in sportscasting. Like, who would have thought that you could get accreditation for that? But we had been working on the curriculum for quite some time. It took us 18 months with just coming up with curriculum. But to be able to, you know, offer things in eSports or mm-hmm. directing or producing or podcast um, on camera, behind the camera, I just, I, wanted, I want you coming out to be able to get a job, not an internship. Like, I want you... First week you're there, we put you on camera. We have a studio, we put you on camera. I just want you to get a taste of what it's like. I don't want you to wait till the end of a semester and go, oh, yeah, we finally got on camera. Uh, As far as radio or a podcast, I want you doing it right away. I want you to start here, and then we work our way back. So you know what this feels like. Now let's work our way back to then build you back up. And the people that I brought in, they're all people who I worked with at ESPN, uh, the guy who runs the program, Gus Ramsey, worked 20 years at ESPN. Mm. And he was a highlight supervisor, coordinating producer. So that experience right there, he's dealt with kids, students. Uh, the other guy was the director, Jeff Schetzel, who was there 20 years. So these are all people who've done it. This isn't a teacher who's doing it. These yep. are people who did it, do it. Uh, our you know advisory board, Bill Simmons is on it. Sage Steele from the Mothership. Jay Harris. Uh, we have somebody from Amazon mm-hmm. who's starting Amazon Sports. We have people from Turner Sports. I want people who have done it or doing it. Then you can get real answers. I want you to have real experience here. And Full Sail, you know, they've had people in the uh, 
uh, engineer, like music, recording. Uh, Shaq is, I think, going to do something with a music uh, uh, studio there. We have graduates working on Game of Thrones. You know, Full Sail was something I, yeah. I wasn't aware of, but it's a, it's a trade school. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a trade. You're going, you, you have to take your basic core classes. You will not come out of a university better prepared than Full Sail. Guaranteed. Mm-hmm. And it says no knock against Missouri or Northwestern or Syracuse or Arizona State. I'm sure they do a wonderful job. But the experience, the one-on-one experience that we give you, we Skype. You know, I'm down there four times a year on campus. We have guest lecturers, you know, Jeremy Schapp teaching about reporting. Mm-hmm. We'll have somebody for sideline reporting. I just said if we're doing it, I have to do it my way. And let me get the right people in there. And Full Sail was unbelievable. They were like, this is something so new for us. We're, we have you. We have your back. And I'd never been prouder. And the reason why I got emotional is for people to believe you, believe in you. And I think it kind of came full circle. I couldn't get in this business. And I want I to put myself back in that position where these students are going, how do I get in the business? I didn't know how to. I obviously do now, but I want you to know sooner in case this is what you want to do, you think you can do, get an opportunity to do it, or you can't. You'll never have that doubt. You'll always go, I was prepared. And I tell them right away, the kids I saw, the students I saw two weeks ago, I said, you're not all going to be on the air. If you are, you're going to be in the minority. But understand this, and I don't think universities tell you this, that nobody ever said to me, there's a good chance you're not going to be on the air. Now, if they would have told me that I would have went, okay, now I got questions. Like, do I want to do this? Right. Do I just follow sports as a hobby? Hmm. I tell you right up front, and I tell our teachers, let them know what reality is. Because, man, this business, reality is harsh. And I said, if you know up front, now you know the odds. Now let's go to work. And if you overcome those odds, you're going to be ready to go. But no one will come out more prepared with more airtime, if it's radio, TV, directing, camera work, than you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really wonderful. The, the, the thing that I'll add to that, having uh, kind of learned a lot of this stuff on my own and continue to trip and fall and try and pick ourselves back up, is that even without a line of sight on career or, or revenue, getting in front of camera and speaking in front of a mic, there's no faster way to learn about yourself, to learn about healthy communicative uh, behaviors or ways that you can listen better or certain ticks in your, in your dialogue. And, and it's just a fast track too, to becoming a better human. Uh, and, and to your point, how you've now at this stage in your career have spent so much time and energy on building that opportunity for others and a small microcosm giving me an opportunity to sit down with you. I really appreciate it. It's a great story. I knew it was going to be inspirational and motivational. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I I just tell people there's nothing wrong with dreaming, believing, hoping, trying. And I've I've gained more out of failing than I ever did succeeding. Hmm. Because when I got, when I failed, then you really find out about yourself. I don't find anything out about somebody who wins. I find a whole lot about people who lose. And lose is temporary for me. Yeah, Losing is, is just as fleeting as winning. Mm-hmm. That's the way you have to approach it. I didn't get this. Now what? I didn't get that. Now what? You're going to get to the point where you go, okay, maybe this isn't for me. Now what? But always say, now what? Because when you win, it's rare when you go, now what? You go, yeah. we won. I don't think Alex- Alexander Ovechkin is going, now what? Or the Warriors are going, now what? Right. Cleveland's going, now what? Yeah. LeBron's going, now what? And that's what you have to do in this business. If it doesn't work out in the beginning, now what? And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to say, look at my tape. Or don't be afraid to ask somebody a question. Because you'd be surprised how many people know the position you're in, know that feeling you're in, or they, they'll be willing to help you. If you enjoyed Dan and my conversation, please be sure to let us know. Follow and mention us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Paul Rabel. His is at DP Show. 
Be the first to listen to next week's episode as well as catch up on previous episodes, including my one-on-one conversation with another sports legend, Sam Walker, who authored The Captain Class. Both Sam and Dan are high-horsepowered intellectuals who, frankly, help us make better sense of sports. His episode and many more are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to these pods. Also, when you find us, please subscribe to us. Much gratitude for doing so. There's a shortcut to our show notes at suitinguppodcast.com. Check it out. And as always, have a fantastic week, everyone.